justice is how we get to make things fair. Hmm. And fundamental fairness to me is acknowledging that everything doesn't start out fair. The point of the CDFI is a fair deal to Hmm. a struggling entrepreneur and small business. I want our investors, we won't be a match for every investor, but I think the investors who are seeking double and triple bottom lines do need to see what we've been able to do. Welcome to Fundamental Fairness, a podcast about financial inclusion from the lens of entrepreneurs, policymakers, and investors. Brought to you by Camino Financial with your host, Sean Salas. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Fundamental Fairness. And today we're going to be talking about scaling impact through CDFIs. Over the last 40 years, community development financial institutions, or CDFIs for short, have become leading partners for banks, foundations, and governments engaged in community economic development. The success of the industry stems largely from CDFI's ability to use business discipline to earn a financial return for their investors while delivering social benefits to underserved communities by empowering lower income communities through access to affordable credit. In this episode of Fundamental Fairness, we explore the world of community development financial institutions and their critical role as financial first responders amid unprecedented times with Lisa Mensa. Now, Lisa Mensa is the president and CEO of Opportunity Finance Network, OFN for short, the nation's leading network of CDFIs. Under her leadership, OFN helps CDFIs leverage public funding and private investment to bring affordable, responsible capital to rural, urban, and native communities underserved by mainstream finance. Since joining OFN in 2017, Lisa has attracted new visibility and investment to the CDFI field through programs like the Grow with Google Small Business Fund and OFN's Finance Justice Fund, a $1 billion with a capital B, $1 billion, socially responsible investment with Twitter as the fund's first investor. Widely considered an expert on access to capital in low-wealth communities, Lisa Mensa frequently testifies before Congress, and recently Forbes and Morning Joe's recognized her as one of five women safeguarding America's small businesses. Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Sean. Great to be here. Great. Well, as we mentioned, your career has spanned through the private, public, and social sectors, and you've led many different efforts. And so first and foremost, I'd love to hear you tell us your story before OFN, including your experience working for the Obama administration. Sure. I love that you share your story, Sean. And mine also starts with my family. I'm the daughter of a Ghanaian immigrant and a mom of German and English extraction. So I always thought I'd do something that would be international in scope. And that took me back east to study at Harvard study government and international relations. Somewhere along the line, I realized that all the issues that I cared about had to do with money. Finance was setting the terms. So I ended up starting my career in banking and learned commercial banking at Citibank and then moved to the Ford Foundation, which is where I spent 13 wonderful years getting to know the sector that I'm now part of, the community development financial sector. And I was asked to lead a program at Ford that was rural rural development, rural poverty and resources. 
And that's actually, Sean, what I picked up on in the Obama administration, also my connection to Aspen. And I'd worked so long on questions of wealth Mm. and wealth gap, but rural communities were always very close to my heart. They made sense to me. I grew up in Oregon. So very rural state. So not very many African-American women who pick strawberries growing up and (laughs) no rural areas. But that actually is what took me to the Obama administration. And And at the Obama administration, you were administrating a good chunk of change, weren't you? It was such a surprise. People don't know (laughs) that inside uh, the Department of Agriculture, a, a wonderful agency, was a $215 billion portfolio <laughs> of loans and guarantees to rural areas, rural housing, all the wow. broadband infrastructure. Yes, not very many people realize that. That's <laughs> what I was in charge of. Oh, wow. Well, that sounds like a huge responsibility. And clearly you did incredibly well there, which then led you to focus on CDFIs post your stint there with the Obama administration. So can you tell us a little bit more about what gravitated you to the industry? And yeah. also, if you don't mind, if you can preface that with a little bit of what are CDFIs, because there's a lot of people sure. listening on this podcast that they're like, CDFIs, right. what? I still don't understand yeah. what they do. So so it would be great to preface sure. that as well. Of course. It's actually a story I had to tell at the Obama administration too, because the Department hmm. of Agriculture didn't know a whole lot about community development financial institutions. And In the department, I was a lender, actually, to rural communities. And that's actually the base of CDFIs. CDFIs are community lenders. Hmm. Some are banks, some are loan funds, some are credit unions, some are community development venture capital funds. But in all forms, whether you're a credit union or a bank, which often are depositories, or a loan fund, which are not depositories, we don't take savings, or your venture fund, all of those have the same objective which is how to develop our communities, how to bring finance to the service of the goals and objectives of the struggling parts of our economy, where Mm -hmm. traditional finance doesn't reach, or when some finance reaches, it's um, terms that aren't very fair. Mm -hmm. So I love that. I love that about this field of community development finance. And I loved introducing many of those institutions to the Department of Agriculture. I led something called a relending effort where we actually brought in more partners to help relend one of the big titles. So that's what kind of took me back. I was making the connections. Mm. And when the Obama administration finished and I needed a next step, for me, it was a return because OFN used to be called the National Association of Community Development Loan Funds. I knew them when I was at the Ford Foundation. So I think of myself as somebody who's come back to this field after seeing it in its very early stages. Great. So it's clear that CDFIs was a natural extension to what you're already doing, and that makes perfect sense. And so then you mutually chose each other. You you went to go to OFN, right? And uh, now you've been there for four years. So can you tell us a little bit more about OFN and the work that you've been doing for the last four years? Yeah, absolutely. So here I get to lead an organization that's over 30 years old. And I'm really standing on the shoulders of so many people who invested in this field early on and who believed that there was a way to take capital into low-income communities. And from my days at the Ford Foundation, what I learned is you really had to listen to the folks who were doing the work. So my first years here, we spent a lot of time listening to the OFN members. And what did they need? What did they feel was their big challenges in the time now, this time. And we heard loud and clear 
that they needed appropriately priced capital to be able to grow. So think of OFN as a provider of investment services to our members, meaning we needed to be a good conduit, particularly for those CFIs who weren't in a philanthropically rich area. They weren't in the footprint of major banks with CRA. They didn't have major foundations in their backyard. They were doing powerful work, but they weren't advantaged in this. This is particularly Hmm. true in rural areas, areas of deep poverty, native areas. So I knew we needed to be stronger at capital. I also, we heard loud and clear that we wanted some new operating models. And I think we're going to talk more about this later, Sean, but Mm -hmm. people knew that the job of lending had changed. Technology had arrived. New things had been happening in our field. People wanted stronger ways of becoming more efficient. And finally, people wanted their voices amplified and they wanted a simpler narrative. This isn't an easy field to explain. People wanted an easier way to explain why we were important, to be able to say, this isn't a hobby. This isn't, we're not junior banks. We have a vital role to play in the provision of capital in this economy. I called it the money, strength, and voice challenge. Mm. And those were the things that I heard loud and clear and that I've been working on for the last four years, how to get louder, how to bring more funds. I felt like the field had been around. There had been members of it had been around for over 40 years. And I kept saying, you've earned the right to grow. You don't lose money. You've been incredibly efficient but you're too small for the work that you've cut out for yourself. So I have been very dedicated to helping the field take a next big step. Yeah, that's great. Just to paraphrase a few things that you're saying around explaining what CDFIs are doing and and amplifying their value to the ecosystem, the voice component, I couldn't agree with you more. For those that are listening, take the label, literally, we are community development financial institutions, right? We focus on community development, but we use finance as a tool to develop our communities from within. And now how you do it takes different forms. But at the end of the day, when in doubt, just rely on the actual name of what we are. (laughs) Camino Financial actually is proud to be a nationally designated CDFI as of the beginning of this year. And it was three years in the making. Lisa, you were very gracious with your time and being in many ways also just supportive because it was a long process and you continuously pushed us to push forward with it and we eventually did get it. So thanks for that. And on the voice part and advocacy for CDFIs, it's also worth noting that Lisa Mensa actually introduce Vice President Harris and granting a lot of capital into the CDFI space. So can you tell us a little bit about also that voice component, but also how it interlinks with talking to key stakeholders now today at the Biden administration and how important that is to OFN's mission? Yeah, thanks, Sean. I have an honor of using the OFN platform to really shout that your lender matters. And we saw this so strongly in the pandemic. Mm. You know, it mattered how people probably have heard of the Paycheck Protection Program, which was essential support to small businesses and nonprofits. And when the CDFIs weren't in the mix, the funds weren't getting through. And we kept saying your lender matters. We didn't just say it ourselves. The banks were saying it. They were saying it to the Trump administration and then Mm. later to the Biden administration. And what I think has been happening in the new administration, it's an administration that, you know, arrived 
in the midst of a crisis, as the Trump administration also had to navigate this time. But this administration made it clear that they saw the need to move capital and supportive public policy to our field. And Mm -hmm. at the end of the Trump administration, the Congress passed a set of supports for CDFIs, and they were the largest ever. It's bipartisan, $12 billion of supports. Mm -hmm. Where you saw me is I got to introduce the first billion dollars, the first $1.25 billion. They're called rapid response grants. And we're a field, you said, it's taken you some time to get certified out of the U.S. Treasury. Congrats. Thank Uh, you. We treasure that certification. We appreciate having an agency. But the agency at Treasury that's been responsible, it's had to share about $250 million between the 1,000-plus CDFIs, banks, Mm -hmm. credit unions, loan funds. And now with this 1.25 rapid response, 863 CDFIs got emergency funding, and it is grant funding, very flexible funding. So that was really both a testament to how the Congress saw our essentialness to the economy, how they saw us being able to lend into this time of challenge, and what we have been arguing for, which is that when we get these kind of funds, we then borrow on top of it. We do more. Yes. This isn't just a a bucket, you know, in and out. (laughs) We're able to leverage those dollars. And we're just really excited. These will be some of the largest grants that CDFIs have ever had. So it was thrilling to stand there with the vice president, with the treasury secretary, with key members of Congress, and really say, though, we're ready for this. We're ready for you to invest in us. Our hope is that actually we move the traditional allocation to a billion dollars a year. Many programs that I saw inside of the Department of Agriculture were that big. And here we have a program that really can do a lot for the economy. It's this leverage dollar. We estimate eight to one. So a billion for us is, we think, eight billion of impact. And we're excited. There's so much to impact there, Lisa, and we're going to spend a lot of time on this. So first and foremost, I just want to give you a case study to what you said. Camino Financial was a proud recipient of the Rapid Response Program. Yeah. And we were able to leverage, not quite eight times, but we were able to leverage at five times. That was huge for us. And we were able to leverage at five times. I'm sure we would have been able to do even more than that, but we targeted those funds as first loss reserves to the most vulnerable types of businesses who are the micro businesses. We actually, we even break down micro businesses even further, those solopreneurs. And we find that there's a lot of solopreneurs in the market, everyone from a business making less than $500,000 to a 1099 contractor that, by the way, most of their income is dependent on this is their business, right? And yet in the eyes of different lending programs that are designed for, quote, small businesses, they don't necessarily meet the eligibility criteria and or are left with very expensive alternatives. So what we're doing is designing a program to lend into this solopreneur loan program. We think this opportunity aggregates to something in the range, just in the Latinx community, to something in the range of $40 billion in unmet credit demand a year. Sole proprietors, 1099 contractors, freelancers, side hustlers. Side hustlers. That's (laughs) our economy. That is our economy. That's where we're moving. We can't can't give up on this. 
You're and we can't right. leave these entrepreneurs to just really poor alternatives where they're forced to turn and it's not the fault of the business opportunity or the sales opportunity. It's the wrong product. It shouldn't be in really high interest things or merchant cash advances, which takes so much. So I love that you're able to do this. I just feel, Sean, that the pandemic made a lot of people give up on this level of small businesses. Now, the people didn't give up. Mm-hmm. Where is their options? You know, they mm-hmm. knew that the economic vitality that was possible. But I think lenders gave up and there is a flight to quality in traditional finance. You know, mm-hmm. I sit on another bank board. We couldn't do the same things post-pandemic as we were doing pre-pandemic. But that's the beauty of running a CDFI. It's like leaning into the storm and be innovative. I love what you're talking about at Camino Financial. If not, you rule. That's exactly where, think about a very modest piece of the country's tax dollars going to fuel the literal fire that will take off. I guess I shouldn't use fires talking to a Californian, but I think this is a good fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> the I fire get that it. will take off on all of these entrepreneurs who, yeah. who need a fair deal to grow. You're absolutely right. And if not for that capital, I don't think we would have been able to get this program off the ground as quickly. Uh, And this program will scale in the hundreds of millions of dollars fairly soon. And so we're excited about that. And once again, no one wants to take that first bet on this type of credit risk, especially during this time. And so if not for that grant capital, we wouldn't have been able to do it at least fast enough and out the gate at rates that I believe are very accessible to a lot of these solopreneurs and by far much more competitive than the alternative. And to your point, if we're able to not only make this a one and done opportunity, but make this a consistent flow of capital that's going into community builders Community developers, let's let's use the name let's actually. Use our D. Yeah, let's, let's use our D. Our yeah, 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 yeah. Let's let's use our D so people don't get off message on what yeah. CDFIs are. Community developers, right, that use finance as a tool to create catalytic impact. Imagine what more we can do to even the playing ground for all these underserved and underestimated segments in our market. So love it. So now that was part one of unpacking what you said. Let's go to part two which is better appreciation of what 2020 amplified. We use 2020 PPP as a case study in this podcast a lot because it amplified the good and the bad, right? I think we've already alluded to the bad, which was not surprisingly, the smallest businesses and black and brown businesses were left behind in the earlier stages of PPP. We made some adjustments to that. Not surprisingly, who else was left behind at the beginning? CDFIs, right? Yeah. We made adjustments yeah. to that. And then access to capital magically started pouring in these communities that were underserved and CDFIs played a critical role in that. That's the plus. We allocated grant capital to CDFIs. And now I think CDFIs have really solidified their stance and their positioning amongst a lot of policymakers as the natural first responders that have a direct and natural uh, developing inertia towards these communities. So that's number one. Number two, though, we also saw, what else did we see that it's like, okay, great, we learned a lot, we know that CDFIs are relevant, but we also saw these fintech players come, right? And they also serve to be very 
relevant in terms of lending. There was a really good study by NYU that demonstrated that they tended to be the most effective at offering the smallest loans to markets at a massive scale. And I do think average loan size is a good litmus test to inclusivity of capital because it just happens to be that black and brown businesses tend to be smaller and they require smaller checks. And so we saw fintechs really doing a good job there. So my question now is, is there a world where we can bring these two together? (laughs) And how do we amplify CDFIs through technology? Because I know that's a big open question. And that, at least in my mind, was also a perceived gap in the capabilities of CDFIs during PPP. So can you shed a a little bit more light on, on that? Sean, you and Camino Financial are really one of our bearers of light for what together could look like. So yes, there is a way that the two fields of fintech and CDFIs can work together and strengthen one another. But I love your name of your podcast, Fairness. Mm -hmm. I mean, not all fintech is incented the same way. That's right. And I think when we can align on mission, if this is going to be a marriage, got to be together on what we're trying to do. And the point of the CDFI is a fair deal to Mm. a struggling entrepreneur in the small business, or it's time to work the the housing deals and the facilities deals and the deals around daycare centers. And we're talking mostly small business here with you, but honestly, this is not a monolithic CDFI industry. Mm. There's a lot that is, there's a lot of diversity in products that I don't know that we've seen the end of all of the creative partnerships that could happen. Can you touch on that a little bit, Lisa? Sure. Because that, it's a great point. I do oversimplify. A big part of the objective of this podcast is to yeah. unlock what a CDFI is. We've covered the tip of the iceberg fairly well, yeah. but I don't think the diversity of products have been yeah. touched on enough. We talked a lot about small business credit, but what Correct. other type of credit is offered through CDFIs? So, you know, my shorthand is that we're famous for work on small and micro business. We're also famous for our work in housing. And that is in the two big forms of housing, home ownership and affordable housing. We have CDFIs that have specialized in mobile homes, in modular homes. We've got CDFIs that have started to own the supply curve so that they can help from the developers to the person that gets this, finally got to get the keys in their first mortgage. We've had decades of experience in rental housing, both in urban and in rural areas. We made a business in the Ma-Pa Rehabbers. That was the famous shore bank loan in Chicago, where they created, frankly, two things, housing and new business owners in the owners of the housing and often multifamily, small two and three family properties. So I like to think of this industry as being very good because we're mission focused. We will incent mission over time. You know, we will take Mm -hmm. time. And some of the products that our housers and our facilities lenders have could still be a term loan or a good mortgage. But what they've really brought is the plus side. It's the capital plus. They sweat the details. You know, they work with mayors or county agencies and bring together the streams of finance. My head is going to this project that I saw in Kansas City a couple of years back. And it took this expansion of a daycare and health center 
it took more than two years to pull this thing off. It was so powerful. All of the hundreds of kids that would be served in a school, plus their parents who would have a healthcare facility. But my God, who would have messed with this? Think of our most complicated market Mm -hmm. initiatives. It's return that usually drives why you would do this. And in this Mm -hmm. case, it was driven by a CDFI who was hanging in there with all of the streams of finance to make sure that it delivered the mission. I think that's part of the unpacking of this industry and its various products, its patience, its ability to bring heart and feet and hands and time. And to me, this is actually what makes finance fun. Mm. Finance solves problems. You know, what you just described with your solo entrepreneurs, that was a problem. It's a challenge. And when you can creatively address it, ah, it's a rush. It's a great feeling. I think that's what this industry really excels in. I'm confident that this newer chapter of financial technology will accelerate what we do well without giving up on what is also what we do well, which is chase the mission and really seek the best for our borrower. This episode of Fundamental Fairness with President and CEO of Opportunity Finance Network, Lisa Mensa, is brought to you by Camino Financial. And one thing you mentioned in your response that really resonates with me and and now as a newly minted CDFI, I see it mm-hmm. as a huge competitive advantage, but I also see a fintech investor balking out on our ability to scale it. But trust me, we're going to prove them wrong. Don't you worry about that. Is our ability to, in a way, hyper-localize our impact through local community stakeholders. Uh, the the project that you were referring to yes. right now really does involve people at the local level, Absolutely. right, to kind of work with you to launch any specific set of products, whether it's solopreneur-oriented, real estate-oriented, small business-oriented. But when you can get those groups of stakeholders together Hmm. and make it more efficient through technology, that's when the magic happens. I love it. And and, and the analogy that I tell people, and they may call me crazy, a lot of people thought Steve Jobs was crazy when he wanted to get into the retail business and they're like, what retail? You're a technology company, right? Why do you want to get into the retail business? And he saw the value in creating not only a physical representation of his brand, but I also saw it as a real great way to engage with his customers and gather more market data that would then make the brand flourish in ways that we hadn't seen before. So at Camino, but also forget about Camino, just general CDFIs, I think this is where their biggest competitive advantage is, mm, right? I and love so that. if we can intersect that ability to create that level of stakeholder building and coalitions coupled with technology, I think that's where the value is. And to your point, I think CDFIs are uniquely positioned also to access through those stakeholder opportunities and coalitions, subsidized capital, so to speak, that does give operating leverage to that CDFI that you otherwise wouldn't get. It's not easy. It's complicated, which is why we need to be mission driven, which is why we need to be determined to accomplish this goal. And then what we can innovate around that. But what say you to a, a fintech investor? Our tech investors like, yeah, but does this really scale? Like, 
Are you sure? Is there money to be made here? Should there be money to be made here? What do you say to the skeptic? In the old days, I used to say, come see it. Come see what what we're doing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Maybe there's a smart way to do this. But I like your point about hyperlocal knowledge. Mm -hmm. Maybe not everything is going to attract our investor group. But come see what we're doing. Come see what's happening on native reservations with the home mortgage market. Mm. I mean, honestly, it's powerful to see that some of our native CDFIs have innovated around. They've even used, I testified on this. Why should we let these small dollar mortgages, why should this become a product that the federal government supports? The innovation is strong and the need is huge. And I kept saying, note the innovation here. Sometimes it's not only the mortgage product, it's the construction of the house itself, which is net zero and green and wisely done to be priced at a level of affordability. Mm. I want our investors, we won't be a match for every investor, but I think the investors who are seeking double and triple bottom lines do need to see what we've been able to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy. If I'm not a match for every investor, so be it. You know, there are easier ways to make money. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I think when we are aligned, I liked your point in this micro entrepreneur model. You're going to prove some scale here, Sean. And that's powerful. Some of the things, it won't be a scale bet, but it'll be a bet with exactly where the deep market need is mm-hmm. and yet has not been met by current investors, you know. Banks still have difficulty lending on reservations. Many banks have left many of the communities that our rural CDFIs serve. Many banks have left areas where some of our deepest urban CDFIs are working to find value. So I like what a new investor forces you to do or a new pitch to an investor forces you to do. It forces you, and I will say me as a, as a defender of CDFIs, to mm-hmm. clarify what we're good at. Admit if we can't meet your terms, so be it. You gave me props for our goal of a billion dollar finance justice fund. We haven't reached it yet, but we've been out talking to companies this year to say, join us on this fight. You have made your commitments to racial equity and to lessening the deep inequality that was revealed after this pandemic. Show us what your 10-year money can do. And we've been making a pitch largely to corporate treasuries to let some of their cash be invested with our field. That's a different kind of investor pitch. That's interesting. And we've been successful. This is what Google and Twitter helped us show that for some who are in strong cash positions now, let us be responsible for that. We're not going to give you the high rate of investor propositions that other things. This isn't 10% yields. But if you will come with us, we even shared the returns. We shared the 3% returns on our 10-year money. So I think there's a need to match up our investors with what we can promise. I think there's more there than we've been able to argue in the past. And I am pretty confident that we are worth the look. I do want them to see. Come with me and see what we've been able to do. Come see the Caminos. Come see the Lakotas. Come see the Hope Enterprises. Come see the IFFs. Come see what we've been building in our communities. What 
hyper-local yields and see if you can be part of this. And we're ever hopeful and, and also just hopeful about being in some of these new asset classes. Maybe we don't, we're closer to a bond style yield than some other investments have been. And by the way, this is meant to be a conversation. I'd yeah. love to add to the answer because this is part of our pitch too, yeah, by the way. No, um, <laughs> and I'd love to add to that pitch, which number one, I think, and I would go ahead and challenge, and I actually asked a very high profile CEO of a very large, very (laughs) well-funded, multi-billion dollar valued fintech, how do you define the underbanked? And what percentage of your client base is black and brown? And he couldn't get the definition, right? And he's like, we don't track the demographics. Mm -hmm. How can you say you're underbanked? So here's what's interesting. I think it is BS. 80% of the time it's BS when they call that they're going after the underbank market. Typically, they're going after millennials or even now younger generations, Gen Zers that are not necessarily hitting their maturity curve in terms of how bankable they are. But it's only a question of time once they become bank. And they appreciate the new look and feel of a chime, for instance, right? That wasn't the company, by the way. So I'm not singling out chime. And so to that point, right, I think that I actually do believe, and I would go as far as say, most fintech investors are blindsided, but what truly is the underbanked in the United States? Mm-hmm. And I would say that very few fintechs mm-hmm. that I know are innovating in ways that Maybe one day Jamie Dimon wakes up and says, you know what, that's nice that you guys are focusing on this demographic. I'll take it from here. And so I think that the execution risk of what these models are doing is relatively high. And I'm concerned if the business models over time scale, because I don't think necessarily someone drops a JP Morgan account to go and adopt the Chime account. I think they have both and the banking relationship is different one versus the other. That's a hypothesis that I have. And so I would go as say, if you truly want to find white space, blue ocean opportunities within the United States, really focus on where the underbank markets are and then pinpoint what are the operating levers that can help you scale impact in these markets. And I think CDFIs in particular have access to sources of capital and operating levers at the local community stakeholder level that makes innovating this and scaling in this space cost effective. Because guess what? The same is true that I think we're in very early innings of tech adoption in these segments. No, Um, I agree. We're in early stages. Yeah. And, you know, we need some folks like you to get out ahead and to help us. And we need the partners. We as a field, we've seen some interesting partnerships. We've seen some people get out ahead and come up with innovative platforms for streamlining the origination process, for matching entrepreneurs with the capital that meets their needs. But we're not done innovating either. I love the notion of where is the blue ocean? And for me, it always comes back to if you're fishing in the blue ocean, what's your responsible job? You know, it will never be attractive CDFIs to give to harm. We're here to build with entrepreneurs or with the homeowners. And I've seen it over and over 
people could make more, but they choose to be on the side of, you know, the new homeowner. You know, what's the real product that I should put you in? Not an inevitable rate mortgage that's going to harm you later. My product should be a stable fixed rate product. I love talking to our credit union members and they're constantly saying, what's the fair thing that I need to give suit you up with when you become a member of a credit union? What's the thing that's going to get you to a better, stronger financial future? I love that question, which guides us. So absolutely couldn't yeah. agree with you more. And then there's two other quick points I'll add and I'll, I won't be as long-winded on these ones. You're <laughs> going to have to interrupt me, Lisa. <laughs> I love this. Uh, but, but two other quick points. One is you said eight times leverage. There's a levered return component Ooh, to what you that. just said. Ooh, so if I, I see that. the levered return element of eight times, I can tell you right now, I can deliver above market returns for an equity tranche using CDFI allocated funds because there's a lot of first loss reserve opportunities, second loss reserve opportunities, which actually parlays to my last point, which is, okay, where do you get that, call it subsidized capital that can deliver above market returns for certain tranches that are more market driven? You said it yourself right now for the first time ever, we're not just seeing banks make big commitments into CDFIs. We're seeing the likes of Google and Twitter. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That are comfortable making 3% on their money. And by the way, it's not totally like charity. (laughs) Their customers and their stakeholders care about what they're doing too. (laughs) Because corporations have a responsibility. You got it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And they've had to defend their investments with us. And they've said, look, look at what this current environment is for us. We're actually, these are some of the strongest investments we're making. We're talking about relative to other cash-like, municipal bond-like opportunities. This is actually a good business proposition for our cash. And I love the story they are telling to their rest of their stakeholders, to their employees, to their own government stakeholders. They're saying, we understand this is our future too. We're in the same country. We're in the same global economy. To me, that's one of the best things that happened out of this time of great sadness of way too many deaths is that the seriousness that people started to look around and they were treasurers. And the reason I know it's serious is that we were able to persuade these treasurers to come with us for 10 years. That's putting 10-year money at stake. Wow. That's not just a blip in the Federal Reserve rates for a year or two. That's longer than a lot of banks were holding. That's longer than Mm. some foundations were holding our debt because we really were able to make the case. This is a field that needs the long-term where you have to start repaying in year two of a four-year note. How much can you put out yourself? So they gave us time and I am just, it is a really positive thing. And it's why I hope more people follow their lead and join in at this moment. I hope this moment of racial awakening, of an awakening to the kind of economy we've got right now, which is not all that just, brings more people to take actually a fairly safe investment that will have these many levels of impact. And I I appreciate your insight. I'm going to come back and refine my pitch with you. We're refining each other's pitch. We're literally growing (laughs) together. That's how we roll. So to that point, do you think the capital markets environment for CDFIs is changing forever? 
or do you think this is a potentially one and done deal? I sure hope it's changing forever. I hope we've got on the radar of more investors. No one at the beginning of the pandemic expected CDFIs and MDIs to deliver $30 billion of PPP Mm -hmm. loans. That was just wildly. And we didn't even have that kind of capital. So Mm -hmm. it meant that we had to grab a whole bunch of partners to even lend that capital so that could be reimbursed Mm -hmm. by federal sources. So I hope that some of the lessons learned in crisis will forever change the investor base and how we work and the partnerships. There is a risk though, Sean, let's not be naive that appetites are short. No one likes to think about sad things for very long. When we focus on deep racial injustice, that is not just for African-Americans or Latinos or Natives or Asians. It's deep in our country and no one enjoys wallowing in the pain of it all. We don't. We Mm. want to get to the dividends that uh, are called solidarity dividends. You know, we want a Heather McGee's word. Um, But I do think there's a risk that this is in vogue. What I've seen, though, are the accountability sector, the press, the social media, holding people accountable. So you made a commitment. What does it look like? Mm -hmm. And that's where I have some hope for CDFIs. I think we're a very practical way. We count things, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, justice is hard to count, but Mm -hmm. at least in counting loans and who got them, we're able to say, where did your money go? Where does your money sleep? Who did it touch? And yeah. I you can define under you bank. Can, you and, can define and, under And bank. you can break it down we, by demographic and can, sector. Yeah, We can. We can say where your money went. So I'm hoping that that keeps us in here for the long haul. But fights are long. I do feel that what you need, though, is this mixture of heart or guilt or opportunity moment. And then you need the systems to come back in. And this is why we're fighting so hard for the money systems to be strong within intermediaries such as OFN. We're fighting for the government and public systems to take a notch up. The CDFI fund's 25 years old. It shouldn't be trying to operate at a similar level as its founding when the scale of the number of CDFIs has grown tremendously. So we're hoping that with some of these structures that shifted, the way long-term capital from federal sources came into this field this year, that that will sustain. And those are the kind of things that once the lights are gone, once the 10-year commitments are done, if the structures are sound, and then we'll be able to work forward. It's like being more part of the fabric. Partly, this is kind of what I saw working at an old department, like, you know, the Department of Agriculture, Lincoln, Mm -hmm. President Lincoln established the department. And there's a lot of tradition to it. There's a lot of tradition to why Mm. did we invest? Why did we need the Mm. government alongside our farmers and rural communities and our ranchers and our food purveyors? This took a long time. And I think we're seeing the beginnings of the serious systems that need to embrace our part of the financial markets. I do hope with the leverage we're talking about, Sean, that this will be proved as a strong We still do this. We're noted around the world for extremely successful agriculture. But Mm -hmm. here, there's still a public role. I think this is kind of some of the systems that need to come into play here. So I would argue for 
let's keep the focus on. It may dim, but let's get the systems in place so that the work we know still needs to be done in this very wealthy country can continue. That's great. And I couldn't think of someone better than you to be at the forefront of voicing the need for CDFIs to play a critical role here. And to your point, we should be making billion dollar plus allocations into CDFIs an annual thing. Because imagine to your point, a billion dollars creates $8 billion worth of value. And trust me, once you create that billion dollars worth of value, now you have enough validation to scale that potentially without that access to subsidized capital. Because let me be very clear, Camino Financial will need, we needed this capital to come in and start validating this opportunity. But at one point we can walk on our own two feet because we do believe there is not only a social return, but an economic return to all stakeholders in deploying this type of capital into the market. But we do need those supporting funds, at least at the earlier stages, depending on the credit program and also in the most rural, hardest to reach segments of the market as well so that innovation can take place. So couldn't agree with you more. Now, we're heading to the tail end of this podcast, and I have a big, broad question. It is purposely vague. (laughs) I'd love to get your views on this, as you already referred to. Our podcast is called Fundamental Fairness. So I'd like to know, what does fundamental fairness mean to you? Well, the word that shouts out for me is that it's the word that's been a mantra for me. And it's really about justice. Mm. What does justice look like? And for me, justice is how we get to make things fair. And fundamental fairness to me is acknowledging that everything doesn't start out fair, equivalent. People are born into different circumstances. People have different starting lines. What is it that makes the journey fair? And I think that's about this question of going deeper on being just. So I lead a CDFI network because I just believe we can do better by all of our American population. I believe we can do better with our money. I believe Mm. in a very rich country, which I was so proud to serve as a public servant and which I am a proud citizen of. We can actually make a huge dent to close wealth gaps and to make the economics of our country more just. It'll always take work. It'll Mm -hmm. always take a fight. But fairness to me is about everybody getting a fair shot, a chance. And I'm just deeply proud to work in an industry where that's what people get up in the morning to fight for in these creative ways in so many diverse places. And I'm very honored to work in it. I love the question, Sean. I am, I'm proud to be part of a field that I think is striving and adding to a more fair economy. 
Great. And how can people follow you, learn more about what you're doing? You already have a lot of fans, including me. <laughs> but for those that want to continue to follow you, how can they do it? <laughs> if you forget CFI, you can just remember OFN, Opportunity Finance Network. <laughs> that is my shortest acronym that I've been part of. We're easy to find. Join us at our, we're doing our big conference, Sean. Great. So people should come online and see it. It's virtual this year, October 19th. And in fact, we called it Finance Justice, Finance Change. So come see what we're talking about this year. And thank you, Sean, for opening up new audiences and new ears to hear about the work. You got it. Well, thank you very much for joining and look forward to joining you and continuing with this fight because we got to do it. We got to do it. Thanks, Sean. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Please be sure to like and subscribe to Fundamental Fairness anywhere podcasts are available. We'd like to thank Bethany Sands for sound and editing, our creative team, Tanya Chaidez and Eric Colleen, assistant producer, Melanie Diaz, and our senior producer, Elianette Romero.